0: from the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post.
0: Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahi Azadi with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, April 4th. Today, reports of frustration within Robert Mueller's team, Jamal Khashoggi's final moments, and voices from the civil rights movement. Very few people have seen the Mueller report. What we've seen instead is a four-page letter from Attorney General William Barr about the
2: 400-page Mueller report. He quoted the report. It's one of only a handful of words that he actually gave us directly from the Mueller team. Roz Helderman has been reporting on Barr's four-page letter. And so this is what he said the report states. He wrote, quote, the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. So pretty straightforward. They did not establish that they coordinated or conspired with the Russians. And Trump has taken that letter
3: to mean. No collusion, no nothing. So there's no collusion. The attorney general now And the deputy attorney general ruled no obstruction. They said no obstruction. Obstruction, however,
2: the other question he looked at, whether the president of the United States undermined this investigation in a criminal way, that seemed more complicated and ultimately wrote, quote, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate
3: him. And it was a complete and total exoneration.
0: But now we're hearing that some people on the Mueller team aren't happy about the way that their work
2: is being handled. We are just now starting to get some sense of how the special counsel's team, who has really toiled in absolute silence for two years, how they feel about this. And to be clear, they're not putting out statements. They're not giving interviews. But they have told some associates, and we're starting to get some reflection of that, that they are distressed about this moment, that they have some frustration about how quickly the public perception has hardened around the conclusions of their report. Given that really no one's actually read their report. And so one thing we understand is that the report in its totality, though it does not conclude that people should be charged with additional crimes, it does contain more damaging information for the president than you would gather just from the bar letter and that particularly Mm. on the question of obstruction of justice, the question is in some way that we don't fully understand yet more complicated, which I think you could kind of tell because Mueller did this weird thing where he kind of did this on the one hand, on the other hand thing where he said he couldn't conclude the president had committed a crime, but he also did not exonerate him. Well, there's got to be something in that report that explains why Why they can't exonerate him. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, so there is apparently this frustration that there's this sort of lag time. And, you know, meanwhile, the president is out there claiming total exoneration. The report itself says it didn't exonerate him, but no one exactly knows why. And the fact that We're hearing this from people who've heard it from the Mueller team in and
0: of itself, I think, is really surprising because we haven't heard almost anything from them for the entire course of this investigation. And I think that speaks to the extent to which
2: they're seriously concerned that the narrative has already been set. I think that's exactly right. I think it speaks to their level of distress, their level of frustration, their level of agitation, somehow a desire that you know, there'd be a little bit of a, of a reset of the narrative. We don't live in a patient society, but a little bit of a, a sense that people should be a bit patient so that they could actually see this report. Uh, another piece of our reporting is that, you know, so Barr put out this four-page summary. Th- though he says now that it wasn't a summary, it was just the top conclusions. Absolutely, this four-page non-summary summary of the conclusions. Well, our understanding is that the report itself has summaries. It has executive summaries of its different sections. And there is a sense on the part of the special counsel team, we are told, that they wrote those summaries with the intention that they could be fairly easily redacted and released quickly. Hmm. And there is, again, frustration, distress that Barr put out his summary or what has been perceived publicly as a summary rather than waiting a bit longer, redacting their summaries and allowing us to read at least the summaries in the words of the special counsel team itself. Do we
0: know why the attorney general chose not to release those summaries from the Mueller team and
2: instead wrote his own kind of recap of the report? Yeah, so they actually put out a statement just this morning in response to the stories from The Post and also The New York Times. And they're sort of pushing back against the idea that those summaries were so easily released. They note that every page of the confidential report is stamped with a little phrase that says that that page may contain grand jury material. Grand jury material is evidence that has been submitted in front of a criminal grand jury. And by law, it cannot be released without the approval of a judge. And so, you know, they're noting every single page is marked in that way. So, of course, you know, they they couldn't have just released it. Now, To be clear, our reporting is not that the special counsel team believed that it should be instantly released but no redactions. It was that they wrote them in a way to make redactions easy so they could be quickly released. I mean, I think we're also going to get into a semantic debate of what is quickly. We're also told by a spokeswoman for the attorney general that he is, in fact, working very quickly, that he continues to aim to put out a public version of the report by mid-April, that he's working as quickly as he can, and that he also did not believe it was wise to release this piecemeal fashion. He wants to put out the whole thing at once. But are Democrats
0: buying that, that reasoning that, well, this is actually much more difficult to redact than, than the special counsel's team is describing it?
2: In a broad way, Democrats aren't buying this idea of redactions at all.
3: I have said and I'll say again uh, no thank you Mr. Attorney General we do not need your interpretation show us Show us the report and we can draw our own conclusions.
2: There was yesterday a vote in the House Judiciary Committee to authorize the issuance of a subpoena for the whole report, unredacted. Now, the chairman of that committee, Congressman Nadler, has indicated that, you know, he's got the authorization to issue the subpoena. He's not going to do it instantly. He's going to see what Barr does. Are you
4: willing to negotiate
1: any middle ground in terms of redactions? No. You're not. No. The committee must see everything, as was done in every prior instance. The committee is entitled and must see all the material and make judgments as to what can be redacted for the public release by ourselves.
2: You know, in general, the Democrats' position right now is there should be no redactions and they should also receive the underlying investigatory material that bolsters the report. You know, on the specific issue of grand jury material, which there is no dispute that it is illegal to release grand jury material publicly, uh, they say they want the attorney general to go to a judge and ask for permission. There's, there's a historical precedent. That is a thing that can be done. And so far, the attorney general has not indicated that he has any intention to do that.
0: Why are Democrats in Congress so hell-bent on getting a copy of the full report?
2: Well, I think there's a few reasons. Um, One is they believe that there is additional damaging material here about the president and people close to him. And from a political standpoint, they would like to be able to use that material going forward to make their case against the president. He's going to be up for re-election in 2 years. They they want to know what is there. But there's also this other maybe slightly more high-minded element which is that you know the special counsel's team are prosecutors. They have to make the decision about whether to charge someone with a crime. But Congress has a different role in our system. They're the ones who have to decide whether the president committed this much more amorphous category of high crimes and misdemeanors that would lead to the impeachment process. And so they believe that they are entitled to see the investigation, the full investigation that was done so that they could do a proper analysis of whether the president frankly, should be impeached and removed from office as opposed to charged with a crime and thrown in jail. So there's an argument that they're not trying to
0: undercut the Department of Justice, but that they see their role as a completely separate lane from
2: what the Department of Justice ultimately decides. That's right, that they have a constitutionally mandated role in the system, which is different from what prosecutors do, and that they need to see all the work that was done by Mueller to see how to run their constitutional process.
0: Has President Trump reacted at all to this news that the Mueller team is
2: unhappy with how this has been rolled out? So, you know, it's about 11.30, so we're kind of still in morning tweeting time as of this recording. Um, I believe I saw a tweet just before I came in here responding specifically to the New York Times and saying the New York Times is fake news, that they don't have any real sources, and that this, you know, this is not a a true story. I would imagine we'll be getting more as time goes forward. And, And I think the thing really to watch is the reaction of the president and the White House to this notion that the report may contain damaging material for him. You know, the, the attorney general has indicated that the White House has agreed not to review the report Before it is released, there's this issue of whether some material should be redacted due to executive privilege, the president discussing things, internal deliberations with his aides. And apparently the White House has agreed to let the Department of Justice, to let the attorney general make the decisions about what needs to be redacted for executive privilege and what does not. But, you know... They could always change their minds about that and that is something really to watch if the president starts to get actually concerned about whether there's going to be damaging material that's going to undercut his total exoneration and, and if he potentially you know, trusts or doesn't trust Bill Barr to be the one to redact that. I have full confidence in the attorney general and his assessment. He's one of the most respected uh, members of the law community in the country. And uh, I think he's laid out very clearly what his assessment is and I have full confidence in that.
0: I feel like all of this new reporting about what the Mueller team is thinking it really goes back to this question of obstruction of justice. We're hearing that there are other things in this report that were not reflected in Barr's four-page summary or conclusions, then
2: that question hasn't been closed yet. Well, it has been closed in this sense. The Justice Department decides who to prosecute and not and not prosecute when it comes to criminal offenses. Apparently, we know from this half line that Barr gave us. The special counsel's team did not conclude he had committed a crime. But there's this whole separate process when you're talking about a president, which is should he be held politically responsible for his actions via the process of impeachment? And I just think we cannot tell until we actually see this report what the special counsel's team's thinking was on that issue, whether they were in fact trying to lay out a case for impeachment, whether they're more nuanced and detailed than that. You know, we're not used to this, but we're going to have to try to be a bit patient to actually see this report.
0: Roz Helderman is a political investigative reporter for The Post.
4: I didn't want to let this go when I learned that Jamal had been killed.
0: Six months have gone by since the death of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. And a lot of the initial questions surrounding that day in Istanbul are still unanswered.
4: The process of holding people accountable isn't over, and I think journalism is just going to have to keep pushing this. Jamal is our colleague, and we need to keep demanding answers to these questions.
0: David Ignatius is a foreign affairs columnist for the Post's editorial page. He and Jamal were friends for 15 years.
4: I have continued to dig and try to find out as much as I can about how he was killed, how that operation was organized, some of the U.S.-Saudi relationships that lay behind uh, what happened.
0: And in the process of his reporting, he's found some new details about exactly what happened after Jamal walked into the Saudi consulate on October 2nd.
4: We have a much clearer picture now of what happened because of a bug that was placed in the consulate by Turkish intelligence. Hmm. I talked to three sources who'd read the transcript, but in particular one Saudi source who'd read it very carefully, uh, repeatedly, and who was able to describe to me, I think with more clarity than we've had, exactly what happened. Jamal walks into the consulate. He's confronted by the head of this uh, strike team that's been sent uh, to Istanbul, uh, a colonel in Saudi intelligence named Mahir Mutreb. And Mutreb says to Jamal, you're coming back with us to the kingdom, Hmm. meaning that they'd come to kidnap him.
0: So so to kidnap him and, and not to kill him immediately. The
4: transcript of the tape suggests that initially they presented this as a kidnapping. Jamal protested. No I have someone waiting for me outside the consulate. That was his fiance, mm-hmm. Atis Cengiz. And the, a scuffle yeah. ensued. Jamal was grabbed. There's screaming on the tape. Yeah. And then the tape says that he was injected with something. It doesn't huh. specify what. And I assume this was inferred by the people who transcribed the tape. The next thing that happens is that someone in the Saudi team puts a bag over Jamal's head. And you can hear him screaming, I can't breathe, I have asthma, don't do this, pleading for his life. And that's basically the last you hear from him. We don't know what killed him. Was it an overdose of some very powerful sedative that was injected in him? Was it uh, asphyxiation with that bag over his head and him, uh, an asthmatic? Was he deliberately choked to death? In a, in a, we just don't know because his body, when he died, was dismembered, and the transcript records a buzzing noise heard in the background. So as, that
0: was likely a saw.
4: It was it was some device that uh, we've come to call it a saw, but the transcript isn't clear as to what it what it was. But his his body's being dismembered, and then in some way that we still don't know, his body was disposed in some place in Istanbul so we have more detail and i think more upsetting picture than ever
0: that th- that also raises more questions right like could if this was initially presented as a kidnapping at least to him you know was this potentially just a kidnapping gone wrong like like an, an accident that he died or or whether they'd changed course at some point the honest
4: that? answer is that we don't know i'm just really trying to describe as a reporter should the information that i've gathered and I think we need to know w- what this mission was. My assumption based on what I know is that they came to kidnap him and bring him back to Saudi Arabia. They certainly had talked about that. We know that there had been conversations between Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, and his key operative, a man named Saud al Katani, about bringing Jamal back. So maybe it was that, but my judgment is that the team that went into the consulate, even if their purpose was kidnapping, had authority to kill him, hmm. either a prior authority or they received authority. I mean, operatives don't just do this, things like this. They don't cut bodies up unless they have authority to do that. So the idea that they did this independently, I think we, it's clear that that's false. So the question is who ordered it?
0: And you've also been reporting on that team who, who they are and – where they've been trained?
4: So, there are two really important things that we learned about that team. One is that members of this team were involved in other kidnappings, detention operations, a whole dragnet of detention and interrogation that began in 2017, according to my sources. The other thing that we've uh, learned in, in this reporting is that some members of this team probably including the leader, Maher Mutreb, the colonel in Saudi intelligence, received training along the way in their careers in the United States. Hmm. That's not to say that we trained them to do this operation or that anybody in in the U.S. was aware that they were going to do it. But it, it does illustrate how in our relationship with Saudi Arabia, we've given them tools, training, skills that they have, in this case, grossly misused,
0: The fact that some members of Saudi intelligence were brought here for training, A, is that normal, and B, was that orchestrated through the U.S. government?
4: So the countries that we have intelligence relationships with, and Saudi Arabia is a significant intelligence partner in the the Middle East, yes, the answer is we we do – train them, work with them, try to build up their intelligence services. One of the things that I reported last Friday was that there was a major contract that had been developed with the help of some senior former CIA officials, including uh, Michael Morrell, who was former acting director, uh, run by a a company called Culpeper National Security Solutions, which is owned by another company called DynCorp, which is owned by yet another company called Cerberus Capital Management. But that training program was an attempt to basically modernize Saudi intelligence, give it better discipline a better organization, better analysis, better collection of information, things that I think um, the Saudis need uh, and, and that in the long run would be good for the U.S. to have a stronger partner. That contract has been held up. It's been frozen uh, in the licensing process for the simple reason that people have so many questions now about the reliability of the Saudis. And I think that's... And what they would be using that training and improvement for. So, exactly. So I think that's, in, in the end... A A last finding in this reporting. Saudi Arabia has a real problem. It depends on the United States. Uh, The relationship is... Important, I want to say crucial for Saudi security. But it's unsustainable right now because there are so many questions about what the Saudis did with Jamal Khashoggi, about what they're doing in Yemen, about other human rights issues like the imprisonment of these women activists. And until the Saudis find a way to speak to those criticisms, I think uh, many of these relationships are going to be frozen. Uh, which is going to prevent the modernization of the Saudi intelligence service, which is unfortunate. They they, they need modernization, but they're not going to get it from the U.S. until they make a clearer accounting.
0: You say that the U.S.-Saudi relationship has really cooled in the aftermath of Jamal Khashoggi's killing. But at the same time, there's been a lot of criticism that we actually haven't done enough to show Saudi Arabia that the U.S. means business, right? That sanctions could have been more significant, that in many ways our economic and military relationship carries on. So has that much really changed? Has, has, has- Changes
4: have been, been limited. Saudi Arabia faces a real terrorism problem. You don't want to abandon the Saudis. That could lead to chaos. What I think is is most important is that President Trump, who speaks as the leader of our country, be more clear in demanding accountability for the death of a journalist who was living in the United States and was working for an American newspaper who was killed overseas. President Trump has said about Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince, well, maybe he did it, maybe he didn't. He acts as if this isn't really his problem. It is his problem. He's the president of the United States. And I think what's going to force Trump to take clearer action is Congress. There is broad bipartisan feeling that the Saudi-American relationship has to be based on more transparency, that there has to be a better accounting, starting with Jamal's death.
0: David Ignatius is a foreign affairs columnist and associate editor for The Post's editorial page. And now, one more thing. 51 years ago, on April 4th, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Here's Washington Post columnist Jonathan Capehart with a story of what happened that day.
3: Should I sit? Um, right here? Okay. Is-
1: the SCLC is the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and this was the the organization that Dr. King ran, and was the fulcrum of the civil rights movement.
3: None of us on SCLC staff wanted to get involved in Memphis. We wanted to go on to Washington, which is what he said he wanted to do. But I think I think that he he felt that his time was was near.
1: Andrew Young was the chief strategist of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. But he would go on to be the mayor of Atlanta and also the United States ambassador to the United Nations.
0: Jonathan went to talk to Andrew Young because he wanted to hear the answer to one question.
1: What happened on April 4th, 1968? Well, I was right there. Dr. King was in Memphis on that day because he was there to support striking sanitation workers and he got there april 3rd where he that evening of april 3rd he delivered the now famous mountaintop speech one that was prophetic because he says famously i may not get there with you
3: we've got some difficult days ahead but it really doesn't matter with me now because i've been to the mountaintop
1: Uh, and the next day he
3: was assassinated I had just come in from the, federal, from the court case.
1: Because in Memphis, they had outlawed protests because they'd become so violent. And so Andrew Young was in court to try to get the right to protest.
3: And I hadn't talked to him all day long, and he was feeling so clown. I mean, he was happy and younger and more vibrant than I'd seen him in months. Uh, and when I came in, he said, where have you been? I said, I've been trying to keep you out of jail. You talking smack to me? And I said, no, I'm just telling you where I've been. I've been in the court. Why didn't you call me? And I said, how am I going to call you in the courtroom? And he picked up a pillow off the bed and threw it at me. And I threw it back. And then we ended up in a, I mean, acting like kids in a pillow fight.
1: That night, Dr. King was heading from the Lorraine Hotel to dinner at the home of Reverend Billy Kyles. Five minutes to six,
3: and uh, Reverend Billy Kyles came to get us to go to his house to dinner. So he left the downstairs room where Ralph was and went upstairs to his room. And when he came out, I was standing at the bottom of the steps waiting for him to come down when the shot rang out. Dan
4: Rather reporting for CBS News from New York. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was shot to death by an assassin late today as he stood on a balcony in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. King had planned to lead another civil rights march in Memphis next Monday.
3: My reactions were strange because they were Christian reactions. And I had suspected that he knew when he was going to Memphis, he was going to his death. And he'd always said, look, death is the ultimate democracy. Everybody's gonna die. And you don't have anything to say about when you die, uh, how you die, uh, or where you die. You can only choose what is it you give your life for.
0: Andrew Young is one of many civil rights activists who worked with Dr. King. Over the next eight weeks, you can hear stories from some of those men and women on Jonathan Capehart's new podcast series, Voices of the Movement. Find a link to the series at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at PostReports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.